0: Amen. Standing tall and falling hard, that's what we're talking about today. And that song kind of encapsulates the whole message very well. Uh, no matter what stage of life you happen to be in, uh, God is still good and he is still God. Amen. Um, the psalmist challenges us in Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 to meditate on scripture day and night. He says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Verse three, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That word for meditate. It's the Hebrew word haga, h a g a. Say that. Say haga. Haga. Now say it like you're hungry. Haga. Yeah. Um. That word haga carries with it the image of reading the scripture like a dog chewing on its bone. Haga. You ever? I borrowed this from a dog named Bandit. By the way, he was generous enough to loan it to me. You ever see a dog really get into his bone? Man, there's, there's nothing finer in a dog's life than a good bone. I mean, the drool, the, it's just theirs. And, and they might let you take it and throw it, but man, they're pouncing, bam, right back on it. For our dog, our dog Jack gets a little green, weird-looking ball called a turnip. And, and we, have to, we have to hide it from him because he gets so obsessed with it, he won't do his job. But man, you break out this turnip, and this dog goes nuts. Like, if you just hold it in front of him, he starts drooling, you know? That's how we should be with the Word of God. We, we should have this ferociousness of, of just a big, fat St. Bernard chewing up on a bone every time we open the Word of God. That's what I want to challenge you today as we dive into the story, as we look at, at what it is to stand tall and to fall hard. I hope that as you look into this story, as you look into God's Word, you'll begin to chew on it like a dog chews on his bone. And I want to help you. I want to make it real easy for you today. I'm going to tell you, the key idea is, is in one word. It wraps up in a word called distortion. So for standing tall and falling hard, the, the key idea today is distortion. And so that we're all on the same page, you need to understand that, that Webster defines distortion as to twist something out of its original shape. Have you ever seen uh, the apps for your phone where you can take a picture of somebody and then you you run it through the app, and it distorts their face like a funhouse mirror. Have you seen those? Some of you may have those. Or or you can you can take a picture of something, and and with a few pushes of a button, you can you can make it like squiggly, or you can make it real short. You can stretch it way out. That's distortion. And some of those pictures uh, they can be funny or silly, and some of them just absolutely terrifying. You're like, whoa, that's not right. As we come to the story, the book of First Samuel, we're chapter ten in your story Bible we're in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to examine three major distortions of this perfect picture that God sets before his people. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that, that we will meditate it. That we will we'll chew on it. That, that we will desire your word. That we can apply it to our lives. That we can leave here differently than how we've come because of your word. Excited to share your story with others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, the, the backdrop for these major distortions is from First Samuel, starting with chapter 1. Uh, if you have your story Bible, it's actually on, um, I think it's page 1, uh, 129, chapter 10 in your story Bible. But if you just have your regular Bible, it's going to be 1 Samuel, chapter 1. There's a man, his name is Elkanah, and he lives in Ephraim. And he had two wives. Some would say, well, there's this problem right off the bat. Has two wives. Uh, one wife is named Hannah, and the other's wife, the other wife's name is Peninnah. Now, what you need to know about Hannah is she was barren, and that means she was childless. And because of this, she was heartbroken. I don't mean a little heartbroken. She was broken to the core. She was heartbroken beyond all belief because she was barren. And then there's there's Peninnah. Peninnah is her, her sister wife, as they would be known today, if you will. And, and Peninnah had children. Apparently she had many children. She had several children. But she would purposely mock and provoke Hannah's pain of being barren. She would mock her. She would make fun of her because she wasn't able to have children. And I'm not making this up. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1-17, through 17, or page 1, 129 in your story Bible, and I'm going to read this to you. This is what it says. Um, excuse me. There was a certain man from Ramathane, a Zephite, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, and the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from the town, from his town, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas—you can remember those two boys, who were the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day of the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Hannah, uh, Peninnah, unto to all of her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Uh, Just briefly right there, that's love for for this time frame. because, Because this was a time when women... Were honored because of their ability to have children. And for a husband to say, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? That's a big statement here. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son... Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. And she defends herself. Picture this. Hannah's praying with that that fervor. She's, she's so to the core heartbroken. She's putting herself before God and she's she's going on and on about her burden. And she, she's asking God to hear her prayer. And she says, Not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my greatest anguish, excuse me, out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. Now, before we go on, I want you to chew on this for a second. And I'm going to be kind of blunt. Um, If you've been blessed with something, shame on you if you are rubbing it in someone's face. I don't care what it is. Now, I had many children, and, and, and when they went to worship, rather than be thankful for her quiverful, if you will, she would mock Hannah for what she didn't have. Now, I realize that today having a bunch of children is not necessarily the social norm, but I also know that as we begin to obtain more things, as we strive for a higher place in, in work or community or whatever, as we as we go that route of what we would call success, we tend to get more tight-fisted with our wealth, and more, uh, we we grab tighter to our gifts. Uh, Let me share it to you this way. When Mitzi and I were dating, um, my dad lived in Georgia, and he called me up one day. He said, hey, I've got a motorcycle for you. All you have to do is come up and get it. I said, well, how easy is that? Uh, I knew a lot of people, and and a lot of them had two or three vehicles, even trucks. And so I made some phone calls, and, and I said, hey, can I borrow your truck? Nobody that I knew would loan me a truck. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't, well, I wouldn't trust you with my truck either. These were people that, that in my past, I had worked for them. I still had like their house keys and codes to their alarms and had driven all of their vehicles at some point in time for one reason or another. And so it wasn't about a trust thing. It was just a, no, nope, you can't use my truck. And then Mitzi's dad, who just bought a brand new Ford truck, I think it was the first brand new vehicle he'd ever had. He handed me the keys and he says, just take care of it. He had one truck. Before that, he had this brown, beat up. I think it was an Isuzu pickup truck, with like or a Nissan. It had probably four hundred thousand miles on it, um, and, and he bought that used. But it's like here he is. He has one truck, one brand new truck. This thing had like twenty seven miles on it, and he gives me the keys. And he says, he says to me, he said, "Hey, this is the Lord's truck." He says he blessed me with it so I can bless others, and he did. In the lifespan of that truck. Which, which ended up with over 200,000, well over 200,000 miles on it, he loaned that truck out to people regardless of the need, regardless of the time frame. I mean, he moved people, he loaned it to people, and he was the same way with anything that he owned. If it was God's, if it could be used to bless someone, that's what he did with it. See, there, there's the difference between Mike Grant and Penn and I. Now, I realized she couldn't just say to him, she couldn't say to Hannah, here, take one of my kids, be blessed. It doesn't work that way, okay? But there are so many other things she could have done, you know, that it wasn't the issue here. It was was like this. Can you imagine? Here's Hannah who's barren, and every opportunity Peninnah took to remind her of her brokenness and her barrenness, especially when they went to worship. Could you imagine that? On their way. I can only imagine the conversation as they traveled to Shiloh. So, Hannah, what are you thankful for this year? Maybe that you don't, have to, you don't have the burden of raising all these kids like I do. You're such a lucky woman. Or how are you going to be able to go before God with any kind of thankfulness when you know that he's left you barren? This just the torment and the words would continue until Hannah would even refuse to eat. And then one day at Shiloh, where the tabernacle rested, Hannah prays to God for a child, promising to dedicate the child to God. And you know what? God hears Hannah's prayer, and she's given a son, and his name is Samuel, which means God has heard, and he's born, and she dedicates him to God in service at the tabernacle because Hannah was a woman of conviction. And she may be one of the only people in this story who really wasn't distorted. Think on that as we continue in. But, but we see here from her life and from Samuel's life, there's, there's three major distortions of God's purpose in this story. Now, I need to be clear. God's not the distorted one, Okay. But it's the way that people of the story are distorted. It's the way that the people in the story take what God's given them and make, it, make a distortion with it. That's, that's what we're talking about. And the first one is phoniness. All right, That's the first distortion we're going to talk about. See, at Shiloh, there was a priest. His name was Eli. He was pretty good. But he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, or Hophni and Phinehas. These two boys were the kings of distortion, if you will. You see, they served, they served as priests under their father, but because they had a distorted view of their calling, Scripture tells us that they abused the sacrificial system. Scripture tells us that they took advantage of people, that they committed sexually immoral acts as, as priests. You know, the problem with their father, Eli, he refused to reprimand his sons. And God judged all of them with death later on. Matter of fact, it was Eli's sons that caused the Ark of the Covenant to be stolen from Shiloh and brought into the house of the Philistines. You're going to read about that this week when you get into the story. But it's also in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapters 3 through 4. Listen, the distortion of phoniness will only last so long. Eli's sons, they were doing wrong. They knew they were doing wrong. Eli knew what they were doing was wrong. And to be honest, parents, we know we know when our kids are doing something wrong. We don't always like to admit it. But we know when they're doing stuff wrong. And if we choose to look at our kids' wrongdoings through these rose-colored glasses that Eli wore and we distort the truth of their life with a phony perception that everything is okay, then shame on us. Matter of fact, if we Christians go through our own life with those same rose-colored glasses looking at ourselves in a mirror thinking, I'm okay because I'm better than Joe Harris, shame on us. (laughs) Joe Harris is not the example. It's easy to be better than me, folks. All right, because Joe and I, we're messed up. (laughs) We're not not the reflection you need to be looking at. If we choose to to look at those things through those glasses, God is eventually going to expose the sin in our life. He's going to expose the darkness in your heart. He's going to expose your kid's heart and what you've allowed them to grow up in. And then we're like, where'd that come from? We're shocked. That came from nowhere. No, it didn't. We find ourselves in a situation. The reality is we should have taken off those rose-colored glasses a long time ago, Eli. And folks, it's not just about raising kids, like I said. Christians, this is about how you are living your life too. Something to remember in this is never take the patience of God for granted. That's just what's happened here. Eli's sons are going through the motions of being priests of taking advantage of people, of using their position in in wrong ways, and ultimately what happens because of them, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. They're exposed. God even says to them later, I will deal with all three of you in death. It's it's, it's kind of interesting. Scripture tells us that when Eli is told about the death of his sons, he's brokenhearted, but then when he's, he's told that the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and taken to the Philistine house of worship, he falls out of his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. Talk about overwhelmed. You see, his, his sons had the outward appearance of priests who served at Shiloh. But inwardly, they were wicked men. Folks, we cannot just have an outward appearance of religion. Oh, look at the cross necklace I wear. Look at the Bible verse header on my Facebook page. That doesn't matter. We have to be genuine on the inside. No more distortion of who we really are or who we serve. We must be authentic. We must live what we believe. Another danger is the distortion of conformity. We're going to skip to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Before we get there, I've got a few pictures I want you to see. And this will help you to understand what I'm talking about. You walk outside one day and in the middle of your sidewalk, somebody draws this. That's actual artwork on a sidewalk. That's impressive. Let's go to the next one. This is a family tree. If you look closely, you'll see the family in the tree. Again, the distortion of art. It's an impressive thing. Show our next slide. Another one on the sidewalk. You you walk out. That's just crazy to think. That's just drawn on a sidewalk. The perception, the distortion is there because of the, the mind of the artist. Go to the next one. Isn't that a cute duck? Or bunny rabbit? Depends on how you're looking at it. Again, distortion. It does all kinds of things to our minds. Let's see our next one. That's the best guitar stand in the world right there. I don't even know how that was drawn. But that's that's an impressive drawing. Is it on the paper? Is it off the paper? I don't know. See our next one. I like that one. Now, that's a piece of art. You have that in your house right by the doors with the light shining on it, so when somebody comes in at night that doesn't belong, they're going to take a step back because that polar bear looks ferocious. Let's see the next one. For you tree and horse lovers in the audience, it's impressive. Let's see the next one. This is my favorite one. How many legs does the elephant have? <laughs> now, logically, an elephant only has four legs, but you look at that picture long enough, who knows what you'll end up with. <laughs> Was that our last one? All right. You see, here's the thing. When, when we're not chewing on God's Word, we're not meditating on His Word, we allow all these things in our world to, to become distorted. We miss what's really going on. We miss the reality of what God would have us know because we get caught up in the distortions. No matter how pretty they're drawn, it's still a distorted view of what's around us. Make no mistake, when we meditate on God's Word, we're less likely to allow ourselves to be distorted on these views, and and we're more likely to understand what His Word means and says. The people asked Samuel at one point to anoint a king over them. All right, So we fast forwarded Samuel's an adult. They say, hey, anoint a king over us. Uh, but there's a problem because Samuel's sons, they were a little less than average too. Turn to page 135 in your story Bible, uh, or 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 20 in your, your Bible. And, and it says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And told him, and the Lord told him, "Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know that the, what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king will do. Excuse me. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons. He will make them serve his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkey he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king. You have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king, to, a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Do you see the distortion here? The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, want to be like all the other nations. The distortion of conformity. Brothers and sisters, this is us. Do you see it? you see the reflection? We're handed the good news of Jesus Christ and we look at God and we say, ah, it's not enough. We want to be like everyone else. We want a king to lead us in battle rather than be delivered by the king of kings. That's essentially what Israel is saying. You know, it's easier to be like everyone else than it is to meditate and chew on God's word and to find ways to allow his word to live in us. The problem is, Israel... The problem is, Christian, we are called, we are the called out ones. We are called to live differently. We are called to love boldly. We are called to connect to others unselfishly. We are called to serve humbly. We are called to share God's word unconditionally. Not like Samuel's sons who use their position for their own gain. But because of his sons, the nation of Israel went to Samuel and they say, We want a king. Your sons aren't like you, they're not righteous, they're corrupt. They don't follow God. And because of that, we can't trust them. So we want you to appoint a king over us before you die. God tells Samuel, the people aren't rejecting Samuel. The people are rejecting God. Listen, don't aim to be like everyone else. We are God's people. We are to be distinct. We're not to be called. We're not called to be like other people. We're called because we are unique people. The final distortion here is the distortion of misrepresentation. You're going to read about this in First Samuel chapters 9 through 13. You see, all this stuff happens, and God allows the people to have a king. But giving them this king is his permissive will. It's not his perfect will. You see, God's perfect will is that the, the nation of Israel will follow him, will submit to him, will live to honor him. But his permissive will is, I'll give you a king. You see, Samuel anoints Saul as king. And Saul is empowered by the Spirit. He defeats the Ammonites. Go, Saul. But then later, Saul disobeys God by not obeying his command to destroy all of the Amalekites for their sin in 1 Samuel 15. And later, Saul is even rejected as king by God because he misrepresents God to the nations around them. And when he does that, David is chosen to replace Saul as king. And we're going to talk about David next week. But once again... It circles back around to us. We too are representatives of God to the world. And when we disobey God, when we then distort God to the world, just like Saul, we need to be like Samuel, who obeyed God, not like Saul who disobeyed God in his own, his own piousness, his own pride. We need to represent God without distortion, without rose-colored glasses, As we come to our response time today, I don't know where you are in life or where you've been, but I know this, every single one of us at some point in our life has been guilty of one of these distortions. You may still be struggling with with one of these distortions. You may be struggling with something I didn't even talk about today. Maybe you've been living your Christian life through those phony rose-colored glasses and it's time to take them off and get real with God. Get real with yourself again and be what you were called to be. No more phoniness. Maybe you've gotten comfortable in your walk with the Lord and, and our world and you've started to allow the distortion of conformity into your life and today is the day that you need to break free from that. And maybe in order to break free from that, you, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe you've just been living a life of distorted misrepresentation of Christ and who He is and what He's done for you. Listen, our service, our works, the things we do can't save us. But folks, just the thought of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and preparing a place for us in heaven should be enough for us to desire to represent him. Just the thought of what he's done for us should be enough for us to desire to chew on his word, to put it into our lives at the forefront of what we do, not as an afterthought. What he's done for us should, should build within us a fire to go out and share the story of what he's done in your life. Make today the day that you begin to represent Jesus Christ well, no matter what everybody else around you chooses to do. We think on these things as we stand and sing our response song? And, and just know the elders are here if you need to pray or if you have questions. The baptistry is ready. We have something you can change into if you need to. But please respond to God's word as we sing. It's been great to worship with you all today, but now it's time to go. As you go this week, I want to challenge you on two levels. First off, I want, I want you to take the opportunity to go out and represent Jesus in the next few weeks by simply using the Easter basket to invite a family to church. It's an easy way to take that first step. The second challenge this week is to meditate on God's word. As you read the story Bible and, and go to your story groups this week, chew on God's word like a dog chews on his favorite bone. Don't just glance through it so you can say, yep, I read it. Dive in. And don't just read the story this week, but meditate on it and then live it. Have a great week.